Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody. Glad that you're here. And uh, we continue with our study of Hosea on our Wednesday night series. Began last week and we continue tonight with chapter 1 and starting in verse 2. Thank you for uh, praying for Camden and I as we were preached at the Pastors Conference in Missouri. And I think there were some technical difficulties on the first sermon there, but I think they got them lined out after that. But anyway, we thank you for praying for us. And we, many of you have commented and sent us texts and emails. And so that really means a lot to us knowing that our home church was praying for us back here. And it was a great time together. Uh, the tennis was a lot better this year. It keeps growing each year. And a lot more people in, uh, engaged online as well as uh, in, in, on uh, campus as well. But anyway, we thank you for your prayers and support for us. Let's pray together and we'll get started this evening. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to study your word together. And even though it's a very difficult message uh, for us through Hosea, I pray that you would teach us what you want us to know, not just tonight, but in the coming weeks as well. Father, I thank you for the passage and thank you for the text and, and the truths that you tell us and help us, God, to take these to heart and, and place nothing in front of you. May you always be our greatest uh, priority and our greatest passion, our greatest love. God, may we not fall into the same sins of the Israelites. So, Lord, help us today. Teach us through this. Help us to be the people that you want us to be. Thank you, Father, for everyone who's gathered here uh, in person, those who are watching us online and studying with us together online. Thank you for them as well. May your presence be there also. May the Holy Spirit be our teacher tonight as we look at the passage. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, Hosea chapter 1, we'll finish the chapter tonight, verses 2 through 11. We began last week looking at the introduction of the book, and I think that will make the uh, book make a lot more sense to you knowing the background that we saw last week. Perhaps, it's, Hosea has been called perhaps the strongest book in all the Bible, probably the most emotional book in, in, uh, in all the Old Testament because of the depth of emotion and anguish that's there in Hosea's life. Of course, it's a mirror, it's a picture of God's anguish over us whenever we place something as our first priority in our life. Uh, a lot of times we just think, well, you know, I know I need to put God first, but uh, right now I need to have to work a lot and things like that. And we just think, well, he understands, you know, because of the way it is. But when you put it in the context of a marriage, that your relationship with God, it would be like putting another lover in place of your spouse, then all of a sudden it's a little different picture and a different message. And that's what he did through the prophet Hosea. Seldom has the revelation of God ever been mediated through such depth of anguish and suffering personally by somebody than by Hosea. Uh, so we saw last week that he is an 8th century prophet. 8th uh, century meaning that the northern kingdom has not fallen yet. Uh, the southern kingdom, of course, is still there. It fell about 135 years after the northern kingdom did. So that means he would have been a contemporary along with Amos, along with Isaiah, and Micah, those are the 8th century prophets. So we know the north and south has split. Israel, this northern part is called Israel, it's called the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom known as Judah. And he is prophesying as the northern kingdom is just about to fall. Uh, Assyria will come in 722 uh, BC and they will capture Israel, and the northern kingdom will never ever be there again. Even in the Old Testament, when the Israelites returned from Babylonian captivity, it was the southern portion. 
So those tribes, <clears throat> those 12 tribes in the northern kingdom have all been assimilated somewhere else. So they would fall in 722 right after Hosea, never ever to rise again. Even though God's people in the south did, the northern kingdom did not. Delivering a, a message is difficult enough for a prophet. But whenever you live the message, it's a little harder. Not only did Hosea have to live the message, but his family lived the message. His wife was the message. His three children, two sons and a daughter, they were the message. You know, as ministers, a lot of times we try to protect our families. We don't want our families maybe to, you know, to turn against the Lord or whatever. You don't want them to have good experiences and all this. You try to protect them and not have them become the message. Well, it was the opposite with Hosea. He was, they were the message, and he was as well. So they're, even the names of the kids we're going to see tonight, very much involved in delivering the message to the Israelites, and these kids were raised with this. <clears throat> and so it's a very personal message through Hosea. Now remember, we saw last week the cycle of sin. Israel would sin, God would send judgment, they would repent, he would forgive, and he would start all over again. And so you see throughout the Old Testament, God's people sinning, God bringing judgment, them crying out, oh God, we're so sorry, and him forgiving, and it's starting all over again. We see this cycle, not just in the judges, we see it in Hosea, and really all throughout the Old Testament as well. Also, remember, we talked about last week, Israel had worshipped Baal. Baal was the god of fertility uh, among the Canaanites, uh, and so they worshipped a, a multiplicity of gods, Baal being the chief god, and the fertility cults. Remember we talked about last week, they felt like that if you would plant your crops and, uh, you know, in the ground, and then if you would go worship Baal, who was the god of fertility, and then have sex around the Baal gods and the shrines, that would appease the gods of fertility, and you would your crop would grow, and, your, and you'd have a large family. Your children would grow. Uh, and so we saw last week that that had much to do with what was going on. So that was a very personal and intimate act that they did in, in uh, opposition to God. So God comes along now and, and has a very intimate message for his people through Hosea the prophet. Now, before we start, all the way through here, the wording is going to be rife with covenant terminology. So, imagine that uh, you and your spouse are having difficulties or whatever, and all of your counseling you're receiving uh, comes back to your wedding vows. And so, all the counseling has to do with terms that you swore to one another as you were getting married. That's what God does here. All the way through Hosea, we're, we'll sit a little tonight, we'll sit more as we go along. He uses covenant terminology. What's covenant terminology? That's where God made a covenant with his people and said, you're mine, I'm yours. Exclusively. I'm married to you, you're married to me, we're not going to date anybody else, we are going to be true to one another. That was the covenant he made with him. And so all the way through, Hosea marrying a prostitute and her continuing to be unfaithful to Hosea, you hear words of the covenant keep coming up over and over and over because it's a picture, Hosea and his wife, a picture of God's people being unfaithful 
to God. He should be first. He should be primary. Nothing should come between God, your relationship, and God with you. And it's the same uh, with, home, uh, with Gomer and Hosea. So let's look, uh, first of all, letter A on your outline. Hosea's wife, her name is Gomer, Gomer, uh, verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Let's stop there just for a moment. Let's go on to three. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Let's stop there and let's look at these two verses. At the beginning of Hosea's ministry, Yahweh commanded Hosea to go take a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. And that's shocking for a man of God, right? I mean, God commanding the preacher to go marry a prostitute. Get a prostitute and marry her. That would be shocking. And so a lot of people, because of that, have a little problem with the command God gave to Hosea. Now, I want you to notice the wording he uses. First of all, it says, when the Lord first spoke, the word there, the Lord, is Yahweh. Remember, there are different names for God, Elohim being more general, a God of creation. But whenever you start talking about Yahweh, it's the covenant God. It's the God that you entered into a relationship with. It's the personal God. So all the way through here, when the word the Lord is capitalized in your Bible, that's Yahweh. It's the covenant name for God. But notice how strong the wording is. Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom. Have children of whoredom. And, and, and the, my, my people are committing whoredom. That's a strong word. In fact, we don't even say it. We substitute other words. Prostitute. Uh, woman of ill repute. Uh, let's make it sound better. God didn't. He was straight up. Because what they were doing was so shocking spiritually, he was shocking in his command. So it strikes you immediately, wow, God is blunt. He's very straightforward here about the command to Hosea. Now, Hosea probably wished this message would be mediated through somebody else. But he was the one God chose. Some people have said, well, they're trying to get around what God did because they have an ethical problem with God commanding a man of God to go marry a prostitute. So they try to, try to come up with different theories. One theory is, well, um, it, it really wasn't a wife as we know a wife. Of course it was. Well, whenever it says the word take, go and take, it didn't mean he married her. Yeah, the word take is frequently used through, and throughout Scripture for marriage. It doesn't mean you force somebody to marry. It means you go and take a wife. It's said repeatedly in Genesis that you take a wife. And that's the wording that's used. Go and take a wife. The word whoredom that's used there is in, in the King James' harlotries. But did you notice it's plural? 
not singular. You don't really see that with the word whoredom, but you do with the word harlot. Well, it's harlotries, plural. Go take a wife of harlotries. And that's because in Hebrew, whenever you put the plural ending on something that should be singular, it intensifies it. So she wasn't a one-time or two-time harlot. She was an experienced long-time harlot. It intensified the command. Now, obviously, we know the reason why it was the, the land of Israel, the northern kingdom, was committing spiritual harlotry. They were supposed to worship Yahweh, and they're worshiping Baal. They're worshiping the fertility gods. Sometimes they're putting them in, in, in front of God, and his people were acting like a prostitute spiritually. So that's the picture. Hosea, you're a man of God. You're pure and holy, supposedly, in, as the Old Testament prophets were. And you go attach yourself to somebody who's not. God's saying that's a picture of me and my holiness attaching myself to you, Israel, because you're committing spiritual harlotry. And so that was the, that was the picture. So now we get a we get an image tonight of how God feels when you and I put something else before Him. And sometimes we do. Sometimes we put our jobs before the Lord. Sometimes we, we work so much we're not active in church. Sometimes we put our finances before the Lord and we're not faithful to what He said to be faithful with. Sometimes we put our kids before the Lord. Sometimes we put our spouses before the Lord. Sometimes we put hobbies before the Lord, and we'd just rather go do those than serve Him. And we think, oh, well, one day I will. He understands. Doesn't sound like He understands here, does it? So we get a, we get a glimpse tonight of how God feels whenever you and, and I put things before our relationship with Him. Tonight, folks, your relationship with God should be the greatest relationship in your life, even before your relationship with your spouse or your kids or your grandkids. It should be number one. God should be number one. Have no other gods before me, commandment number one. And sometimes we kind of blur those lines. But we get through this story tonight and through this message we're going to study over these weeks, a picture of how God feels when you and I put other things in front of Him or in front of serving Him, or in front of church, or in front of worship. And so we get a picture of that tonight. Now, there are several theories on God commanding him to marry Gomer. Some people, as I mentioned, have an ethical problem with it, a moral dilemma of God doing that. And so here are five theories that have been developed. One theory is that Hosea really didn't physically go marry a prostitute. He just had a vision that he did. So this is a vision. It's one theory. But the only problem with that is whenever God gives a prophet a vision, it says God gave him a vision. The plumb line with Amos or whatever, Ezekiel. The, he, it tells us it's a vision. Here it doesn't tell us it's a vision he saw. It says go do it. So those people are trying to, well, make God look better. Well, it was a vision. God really wouldn't command him to go do that. No, God commanded him to go do that. Second theory. God told Hosea an allegory. 
His wife would become a harlot. Uh, and so it was an allegory. She really didn't become one, but God just told him an alle allegory like, okay, what if she did? So let's, let's do a story. Let's come up with a story that what would it be like if you married your wife and she turned into a prostitute? The only problem with that theory is we're not told it's an allegory. Nor does it have allegorical language attached to it. It has literal language attached to it. So those are two theories. Try to make God look better. Folks, you don't have to try to make God look better. He's, he's holy. He's righteous. He does what he pleases. We don't have to try to make God look better. But those are two theories that, that I've heard that people come up with that try to make God look better and not actually commanding him to marry a prostitute. Third theory is Gomer was a spiritual prostitute, but she was not a physical prostitute. So she worshipped other gods spiritually, but she really didn't physically be with other men. So that's the third theory. She was a spiritual prostitute. But the wording of the text argues against this, because I looked it up just this afternoon. Again, it's, it's a, it was a wife. It was a physical act. It was not a spiritual act. It was a physical act. So that theory doesn't hold water. Then we have two more theories. One theory is that Gomer was a prostitute at the time of the wedding. So in other words, whenever it says, go marry Gomer, that she at that time was a prostitute and had been a prostitute for some time. That's, that's the fourth theory, that she was a prostitute the day he married her. He wasn't surprised later. She was a prostitute the day that he married her. Now remember last week we talked about that they would have sex acts around the, the Baal worship. And so there would always be prostitutes hanging around the Baal shrines there. And one theory that she was a prostitute at the Baal shrine and had been for a long time. Wow, if that's the case, imagine the imagery of going down there and taking one of the prostitutes at the Baal shrine and coming back and marrying her, a man of God. So that was the, the fourth theory is that she was a prostitute at the time of the wedding. He knew what he was getting into. But a fifth theory is that she had become a prostitute after they married. That at the time of the wedding, she wasn't a prostitute. But later she became one. So that makes God look a little better that he wouldn't command Hosea to marry a prostitute at the time, only that she would become one later. So it's really on her, it's not on God. It makes try to make him look a little better as well so that's that some of them have said that God told Hosea this would happen before the wedding and this fits more with what Israel did they became the people of God and then that analogy would became where they become unfaithful to him so that's why some people agree with that we don't really know if you just read the text and take it for what it is it appears that he commanded Hosea to go marry a woman who was already a prostitute at the time. Now, the name of her daddy is kind of a clue. Did you notice the name of her dad in verse 3? So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblame. Who's Diblame? Well, we don't know. Um, the name Diblame, was it a real person? Was it figurative? Because the name Diblame means fig cake. Was a fig cake 
they would take these cakes and, or other figs and make cakes out of them. But what's interesting is those fig cakes were used in the practice of Baal worship. Whereas we do have crackers and juice for the Lord's Supper, they would take fig cakes. And that was a part of their worship ritual with Baal worship. So isn't it ironic that her daddy's name meant fig cake? So it could have been a figurative or it could have been a real man named Diblame. We don't know. But we are told that he, her father's name and we're told the price he paid for her later on. So it appears God just had him go marry a prostitute. What about the phrase, children of whoredom? Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Now, did that mean that Gomer already had kids from her harlotry and Hosea adopted them? That's what some people say, that, that no, the, the kids are already there. And he just adopted them. Or were they children that Hosea would have with Gomer and prove unfaithful like their mother? It appears that's more the case. It appears like Hosea didn't have any kids when they married. And Gomer didn't have any kids when they married. It's what it appears like from the text. And, they, and then they, after they married, they had children. Because in the verses that follow, we are told of three children that they have. Two sons and one daughter. Now, let's go to letter B on your outline and start looking at the kids. Verses uh, 3 through 5, Hosea's son. Verse 3, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of of Israel. Verse 5, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So they marry, had the big wedding, Hosea and Gomer. After a while she conceives and they have a little boy and they name him Jezreel. Now God used Hosea's family, as I said, as a sign to communicate his message of coming judgment to Israel. The name Jezreel literally means scatter, like you scatter seed. Uh, Israel would be scattered by the Assyrians. That was the picture coming up. As you know, Jezreel in, in Israel, uh, is, uh, it's in north-central Israel, the valley of Jezreel. If you've ever been to Israel, it's the most uh, fertile land that you'll ever see in the valley of Jezreel. You'll see uh, corn and maize and grain and uh, your cotton they grow and a ton of flowers they export flowers to Europe more than any other country in the Middle East beautiful flowers and uh, oranges and grapes and tangerines and I mean it's fertile very 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 fertile ground uh, Jezreel sits on a fault line where there's plentiful water and plentiful fertile soil it's the breadbasket of Israel but Jezreel all through the ages has been a battlefield bloody 
battlefield. And the reason is, uh, in fact, one Wednesday night I showed that to you, showed you a picture and told you why it's been called the perfect battlefield. Napoleon saw it and said, the perfect battlefield right there because you have ridges where you can look for your enemy, you have water, you, have, you can water uh, armies, you have a lot of, of uh, grapes and you have a lot of fruit and you have food, you can feed armies, uh, you can come from the south, you can see where the enemy is. It is a perfect battlefield. So because of that, the Valley of Jezreel has been for centuries a battlefield in the Old Testament, the New Testament, all the way through the Middle Ages, uh, all the way through, even World War I, part of it, General Allenby won a, 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 a victory in the Valley of Jezreel in World War I. And of course we know that's where Armageddon's going to be fought. The final battle will be fought there. So the valley is known for nothing but bloodshed because it's been the battlefield for years and years. So... This little boy was named Bloodshed, Jezreel. Any Jew would know exactly what Jezreel meant. That's where King Jehu had, uh, uh, was, had massacred many, including Ahab and Jezebel and King Ahaz and 42 of his relatives. Any Jew would know that's, that's bloody. You don't want to be named somebody Jezreel. That would be like us naming our child 9-11, the worst day in American history. 9-11 Ammons. Well, that'd get attention when they called his name in school, wouldn't it? And that's what happened here. Got to raise attention. We saw Jezreel walking around. Or if you name your child Twin Towers, or if you name your child Terrorist, Terrorist Ammons. Well, that'd get attention too, wouldn't it? You're driving through Chick-fil-A and ask your name, terrorist, what? Get attention. Every time the boy's name was called, as a reminder, Israel is unfaithful. Bloodshed's coming to you. Every time he called his name. Jezreel, come in. Every time his friends called his name or laughed at his name. You see what his family went through as well? They were the message. Every time anybody in the community saw little Jezreel coming, it was haunting that bloodshed's coming to us because God promised bloodshed's coming to you because you've forsaken me. And it was a reminder every time they saw little Jezreel coming, bloodshed's coming to Israel. What a, what a name to be stuck with. And then he said, I will break the bow. Uh, in that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Interesting because a bow, like a bow and arrow, a bow is a symbol of military victory. It was an instrument of warfare. So a broken bow symbolized a loss of power. I know many of you vacation in broken bow, but it literally means loss of power. And so he says, I will break your bow in the valley of Jezreel and you will no longer have any power. Now, what's interesting is he, he talks about, though, that the southern kingdom would be spared. And they were. They weren't any better than the north. And so people scratch their heads thinking, why would God punish the north and spare the south for another 135 years, give them more, longer to repent? They didn't, but it gave them longer. And there are a lot of theories on that. One of them is just, well, it's just his mercy on the south as opposed to the north, and that's all there is to it, God's mercy. Uh, but another theory is that they at least had 
four good kings in the south, and really the north had none. If you read the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, you'll notice something. First and second Kings about the north, first and second Chronicles is about the south in general. If you notice as you're reading Kings, there are any good kings. And if you're reading Chronicles, every now and then there's a really good king in the south. There are four good kings in the south. You had Joash and Amaziah and Uzziah and Jotham. You had some good kings in the south. And so because of that, some Bible scholars say, well, the reason he let them go 135 more years without punishing the south when he punished the north is because at least they had some godliness in them through the years. And maybe so, but we don't know why. But he does say, I'm going to spare the south just for a little bit. So, first child is named Jezreel Bloodshed. But now let's go to the daughter. Let her see on your outline. They have a second child. And verses 6 and 7, Lo Ruama. Verse 6. She conceived again and bore a daughter. Now, stop right there for a second. Did you notice the text does not say she bore Hosea a daughter? Now, up in the first it says that she bore him a son. But then the second child, it doesn't say bore him a son. So because of that, some Bible scholars think this second child is not Hosea's. Maybe it's another lover's baby. Because it didn't say bore him a child. He just says she conceived and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, verse 6, Call her name no mercy, Loruama, for I will have no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have house, mercy on the house of Judah. There's the south. And I will say them by the Lord their God. I will not say them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. So let's talk about this second daughter, second child of daughter. After some time, Gomer conceived, from whom we don't know, and bore a daughter. The name means not loved, Loruama. Literally, not wanted. Would you ever name your child unwanted? Imagine that. I don't want you. Now, you may have not been wanted by your parents. God makes no mistakes. Or you may have been wanted by your parents. But can you imagine naming your child unwanted or unloved? No more mercy. No mercy. So, God would no longer have compassion on his children because of their unfaithfulness. God was saying, look, let's not, let's not play pretend games anymore. I'm, I'm really not your God anymore. Those, those Baal gods are. Let's, just not, let's not go through this charade. You're still trying to worship me and worship them. Just forget worshiping me. I'll have no more mercy on you. Let's don't go through this little charade of you still trying to worship me too. Just go worship them. And forget it. I'll go on. And I'll have no mercy on you, and I'll not, I'll not forgive you. 
anymore. What an outrageous name for a daughter. And every time you called her, Loruama, a reminder, you're unwanted. Every time they call her name at school or at her friends call her name, unwanted, unloved. And every time they saw little Loruama coming, it was a reminder to the people of Israel, God has told you he doesn't want you anymore. And so this girl lives her life that every time they saw her, every time they called her name, it was a reminder to them, God has given you up because you've given him up. So you can see what depths his family plays in this message. And now let's go to a third son, third child rather, a second son, third child, Loami, letter D on your outline, uh, verse 8. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. Now wait, hold on for a second, it didn't say bore him a son. So, rumors out there again, this child is not Hosea's either. It's another lover's. So, if the text, if you read something into the text, maybe, maybe not. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived. From who? Not told. And bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, Loami, for you are not my people. And I am not your God, period. Stop there for a moment before we get to let 10 and 11, we'll close with that. You can't tell in English, but in Hebrew, there is an increasing progression of intensity in the kids' names. Jezreel, it's bad. Loruama, a little more intense. Loami, the most intense. So as he names his kids, it gets worse. Two to three years after Gomer had weaned Loruama, had this child and named him not my people because Israel had pushed God aside as if they didn't want him to be Lord anymore. I don't want you to be exclusively my God anymore is what Israel was telling. So God says, you will not be my people. You want it that way? Okay. You'll not be my people anymore. Loami. God no longer regarded Israel as his own. Didn't mean he broke his covenant promises. Ezekiel, or rather uh, Exodus 6 and Leviticus 26. Of course he didn't. But so here is this child. Every time they call his name, it's a reminder. You're not God's people anymore. You gave him up, gave you up. And every time... Hosea called the name, and Gomer called the name, and his friends called the name. And whenever the community saw Loami walking in, it was a reminder to everybody, and they just called his name, you're not God's people anymore. Powerful image. Notice in verse 8 where it says, for you are not my people, and I am not your God, rather in verse 9, it literally means I am not I am to you. I am not I am to you. 
What does that mean? Do you remember whenever God took the covenant with his people and, and Moses said, who shall I say sent me? I am who I am. So God's name was always I am, the covenant name, I am. And so here he literally says, I am no longer I am to you. I'm giving you up. Now, just another thought about the kids' names. In the ancient Near East, you always name someone, your child, something very positive. Not necessarily in English. We just name whatever name we think sounds good or it's pretty or it goes well with our last name or maybe it's a family name. That's how we name kids here. In the ancient Near East, you always name your kids something positive that you wanted them to become. So you have three kids running around a community whose names are not just not positive. They're negative and they're haunting. God had given up on his people. Now, let's do verses 10 and 11. We'll close. Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, it will be said, you will be called children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Okay, hold on a second. Before we close, I'm confused. He had just said he's given them up. And now in verses 10 and 11, he says, you will be like the sand on the seashore. Well, that's what he promised Abraham. That's what he had promised Abraham earlier, Genesis 22 and 23. And then he says, you're going to be called my people again. Hold on, I thought you just said he weren't your people. What's going on? You know, sometimes in, in marital difficulties, a spouse will get so frustrated and say, that's it, that's it, I'm through, I'm done, no more. This relationship's over with. And turn around five minutes later and say, I love you, let's get back together. That's what God's doing. That's it. I'm done. Walking away. Not my people. Not wanted. Not loved. You just go worship Baal. And turns right around and says, but I can't give you up, Israel. I love you. Wow. That's powerful. He turns right around and reiterates the promises to Abraham. It's like he's going back and forth. I, I love you too much to give you up. And folks, that's how much God loves you tonight. The very first time you sinned or I sinned, he could have said, that's it. I gave you a chance. But he loves us way too much to give up on us. And we're going to see throughout the rest of this book the depths of Hosea's love for Gomer. And what he would do for her and those kids and what God would do for you in the depths of his love for you. We're going to see that. And so here he says, in the place where it was said of them, you're not my people, you'll be called children of the living God. That's straight from Joshua chapter 3 verse 10. And in the New Testament, let's look at this right quick. Romans 9.25 says what? Paul says, you at one time were called not my people, will now be my people.
And you at one time who had no mercy will be called children of mercy. What was he doing? He was reversing the names of Hosea's kids. Reversing those names. You are my people. You are loved. Peter did the same thing. 1 Peter 2.10. Where he says, you at one time were called no mercy, but now you're mercy. You at one time were called not my people. Now you're my people. He was reversing the kids' names. Peter did it. Fulfill prophecy of right here. But look at verse 11 before we close. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel, so the north and the south, will be gathered together. Wait a minute. When did that ever happen? It didn't. Remember, the north never existed again. The south did. But to this very day, the north is gone. So when will the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together? And you will appoint one leader. King, head. Who's that? Where they wouldn't have two kings that have one king. It's never happened. Folks, it was a reference to Jesus. Many people see messianic prophecy in verse 11. Where he's saying, at the end time, God is going to bring all the Israelites together under one Lord, those that trust Jesus, under one Lord, Jesus the head. And you shall go up from that land, for great will be the day of Armageddon, of Jezreel. So a lot of theologians see in verse 11 a fulfillment of what's to come later when Jesus brings together his people, the spiritual Israel, together and all under one head. The day whenever you truly will be called people of mercy and will truly be his people. So we're off to a tough start tonight with uh, marrying a prostitute, having three kids that are names that were horrible. We'll talk more about the family in the next two chapters, in two and three, of his family and what all the inner dynamics are going on there. So it's off to a bad start of naming the kids, and then you don't even know if children two and three are even his or not. But we'll see more about that starting in next week, chapter two. Let's uh, close, and we will dismiss and see you Sunday. Father, thank you tonight for the, what you teach us from your word. God, I just pray tonight that you would help each one of us to see our relationship with you as a marriage relationship, that we are married to you, and you are to be our, our one and only God we serve. Lord, forgive us of where we put other things in front of you. We wouldn't call them gods, but Lord, in actuality, anything that goes before you is a God. So forgive us, dear Lord, and help us to always be your people and be loved and wanted by you. God, I just pray tonight that you'd help us to place you first and foremost above everything else, and may we do that even this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.